everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, Positively Different Radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson. How was your day yesterday, Lawson? How was your morning this morning? How was your life? Dude, okay, let's, let's, let's take it backwards. Life, good. Morning this morning... Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Had to think about that one. Yesterday. Um, yesterday was my mum's birthday. I mentioned that before the you show. Did. We you then, uh, yesterday we went out for lunch and it was epic. And then we went to mini golf after, which was also really great. We were planning to go bowling and I was like, oh, this is just the worst. I am, I am the worst person I know at bowling. Like I've unironically. This is actually literally true. I, yeah, I've yeah. Seen you've you. seen I, I how seen bad I am. I have I am seen you. Terrible. terrible. I am terrible. But I'm good at mini golf. Like I'm actually decent. Like I win against all my friends. And yeah. so we went mini golf, and I won. Uh, it was me and my sister and my mom. And then it's always good when you win. Yeah, you know it's pretty stoked. But you know it was it was was Mum's day, and it was really it was really awesome to hang out with her. And yeah, it was pretty much it. It was really good day. Yeah. How about yourself? What are you grateful for? Yeah. Didn't oil change? Yeah. <laughs> Cars running good. <laughs> Cars running good. That's so good, bro. That's classic. Nah, God is, God is good. God is still on his throne. He still rules in heaven. He still rules on earth and he still re- rules in my heart. So Amen. I've got so much to be thankful for. Let's go, dude. Yeah. That's amazing. And of course, uh, heading up to Queensland. It's going to be cold down here on Saturday. Yeah. I'm going to miss it all. We're going to be in Queensland doing an evangelistic program up mm. there. A uh, series of meetings on uh, Belteshazzar, Babylon's mm. Grand Vizier. So make sure that you, uh, if you're anywhere in the Brisbane area, head along to Logan Reserve Church or the Gold Coast area. Mm-hmm. Logan Reserve is the place to be, Logan Reserve Adventist Church. You can uh, Google it and come and join us on Friday evening. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. About positively different news. Yes, we are. Okay, I have so oh, I have a few different stories here that are really good. Let's go with this one. Sixty major companies, uh, and by sixty plus major companies, and by when I say major companies, I mean very major companies, the likes of Woolworths, the likes of Coca Cola. You know, the the big con- companies in the oceanic region have decided have have made a, an agreement. Called the ANS Pack. Okay. They've made it the ANS Pack Plastics Pack. Now try and say that really, really fast. ANS Pack Plastic Pack. No, okay. Oh man, it. I was close. It's, it's it's tough. Okay. So essentially, what they're trying to do is they're collaborating together to reduce plastic uh, in a major way uh, in 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 every single area, whether it be in their production line, you know, in, in the waste that they make. They're trying to just c- completely reduce, and their end goal is to obviously... Eliminate. Eliminate. But um, for the moment, they've made this pact that is not, you know, uh, you know, we have the, like, the UN uh, goals of 2030, 2045, 2050, all those kinds of things, uh, whereas their, their pact is going to be rolled out over the next four years. Yes. And in four years... They have pledged, every single one of these companies has pledged to reduce plastic waste by 25% each. Okay. Which is a significant, like... Yep. How big are these companies? They're like big companies? Where, it's Coca-Cola. Bulls, oh, those are big companies. Coles. Like, yeah, I, I mentioned before, like, these aren't, you know, just, oh, it's yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. like Steve-O who owns the servo down the road. Like, this is like, 
the big boys. Yep. Like 25% a reduction in plastic. That'll make an impact. That's a huge impact. Yes. Like ginormous. I mean, our world is just taken over by plastic. Everywhere you turn, there's just plastic rubbish. You know, one of the things I hate is when they mm. mow the grass between the, uh, between the, you know, the grass in the middle of the road between the, oh, the, yeah, the like lanes the freeway. on the freeway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just nothing but plastic. There's just plastic everywhere. I'm like, leave the grass. The grass looks better. <laughs> Don't stir up all of that plastic all yeah, over the place and yeah. make it just look like rubbish. There's, our world is just saturated in plastic and it takes forever to get rid of. It lasts for an eternity. If taken over our oceans, just get rid of the stuff. Mm, 100%. Well, at the moment, amongst all these companies, the average is that only about 18% of plastics are recycled uh, in, in total amongst them all, which is... That's actually not so bad. That's not I thought terribly that's bad. Effort, but that's a massive... Imagine that the, the billions it's of tons of the stuff of that is thousands going straight into the environment. Tons is just going into landfills or ecosystems. You like, can't go anywhere and you find plastic rubbish. Everywhere I go, there's plastic rubbish. Mm. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. I'm done yeah. with it. Well, this is the solution, Law. Like, people, yes. people are hearing it. People feel exactly the same way. Stop making the They're stuff. They're doing stuff about it. Yep. Paper straws, let's go. Metal straws, let's go. <laughs> um, we use metal straws. Yeah, how good are they? They're the best. Oh, you just... It's so much nicer to drink a smoothie through a metal straw than any other kind of straw because it goes all kind of cold yes. and frosty and it's just the best. Well, you know, because the current solution for, like, disposable straws... Is it went from plastic? Plastics, you know, I'll say this: plastic is really enjoyable to drink through compared to paper. Paper straws are literally the worst thing. Paper, paper is a bit lame. Yeah. Oh, it's so bad. Like you get halfway metal, through. Metal is the gold standard, dude. You get halfway through your smoothie with a paper straw, and the thing just starts flopping around, and and, and you can't even it's like just give me a spoon, and I'll finish this. Oh, up. please. Yeah, but anyways, uh, this is good. This is a good thing, Lyle. This is a good thing that that you know, big. Multinational corporations are stepping up and, you know, being responsible in this way. Epic stuff. All right. I have another story here about, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. I have another story here about one of my favorite soccer players um, that I wanted to mention real quick. I know Lyle is kind of looking up at the ceiling yeah, right now. Like, yeah, just uh, tuning out right uh, now. Okay, okay. Soccer's okay. not my game. No, check it my out. Check it out. Do it. I'm not. Check it out. So uh, this isn't from my favorite team. It's actually he's Marcus Rashford. He's the striker for Manchester United, which I kind of I really don't like the team, but I like Marcus Rashford because he's an epic guy. And the reason he's an epic guy, he actually just got awarded uh, with the an MBE, which he's a member of the British Empire at 23 years old, which is like a massive thing. It's like I think it's like the step before knighthood, essentially. Like if you get an MBE, like you're legit and essentially how he got that he's just like he's a 23 year old soccer player he's worth about 16 million dollars but over the last year he has personally donated and generated 20 million pounds uh to go towards school school lunches and food poverty in the united kingdom oh wow so he's actually topped the list they have a a metric uh, that they use it's called the sunday times giving list for you know philanthropy in uh, the United Kingdom. He is the youngest person ever to top the list, and he's done so by himself giving massive amounts of his own money, as well as you know running fundraisers and everything um, to 
to to generate money as well. But it goes even further than that because like he personally feels very strongly on on food shortage and and food poverty in the, in the United Kingdom. He comes himself, and this is the story of a, a lot of professional sportsmen where they come from you know from the bottom to the top. You know, he's like comes from a very poor family, a poor area, like experienced. Um, food shortage himself in the United Kingdom, you know, even though it's a first world country, like it's very heavily populated and there are lots of people living, you know, under the poverty line, really struggling there. And so he went even further. And this is what kind of earned him his MBE and a slew of other rewards too. He started lobbying in British Parliament um, to continue that they have a food program there that was running that is like a free food voucher system that's worth about 170 million pounds. They decided to basically cut it during the COVID crisis because they were like, you know, we're bleeding money. Every every economy in the world was bleeding money, and so he started lobbying in Parliament. Like no, like they were willing to almost cut the entire thing, like really reduce this thing down. That would have had a big impact. A massive. It's 170 million pounds, like massive impact. And they were like, you know, oh well, we can we can put this money, you know, through to other social services, and and somehow like, but then it's like, oh no, why are you, why are you cutting this money? Because you don't want to spend it. And so he was just lobbying hard, just doing his best in Parliament, doing you know public speaking, all these kinds of things to get this going and basically coaxed the government into continuing the program up until this day. Like yeah, this, wow. this was on the chopping block, like in, you know, the European summer of last year. And he has just consistently lobbied and, you know, kept the thing going like 170 million pounds, uh, which is around, you know, 240 million US dollars which is almost like 300 million Australian dollars, like massive amounts of money uh, just through consistent lobbying and standing up for these kids who really like are struggling. Uh, we see the same thing, like similar things here in Australia. Obviously, you know, we're very, very well off. Uh, but still, uh, you know, when there are groups of people, low socioeconomic areas living under the poverty line, like school lunch is like the one area where kids can get nutrition. Like, I've personally worked in areas and, and been around schools uh, where, yeah, like, you know, you talk to the chaplains there, you talk to the social workers at the school. This is just here in Australia. And it's like, man, there are a lot of kids here who don't know what they're going to eat tonight. Like, we have this problem even here in Australia and, and even more so in the UK because they've got a much bigger population. And so, yeah, to see just a footballer, just a young guy who's like, oh, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to try really hard for all these people. And like, make a difference. Get out there and make a difference. Dude, so epic. Like, yeah, so we just such an amazing spirit here, like, to, 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 to do this. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. What's happening in serious news? Okay, so this is really interesting. This is the General Social Survey from the National Opinion Research Centre of the University of Chicago looking at... The relation between science and politics mm-hmm. in the United States. Now, this was a survey that began in 1972 and has been continuing since then. In 1972, which which political party do you think, or which political affiliation distrusted science the most? Probably the Republicans. No, it was the Democrats. Oh, wow. What? Why? Yes. What so the Democrats were massive science distrusters back in 1972, and now that has reversed, which is why you gave the answer that you gave, because, you know... That's in, the current political In your lived life yeah. experience, that's, that's yeah. what you've seen. 
uh, I've kind of lived through the era where it's moved from one to the other and have been able to watch that take place is to that, a certain extent. Is that because all the Democrats were like hippies? Well, the Democrats, well, there was, no, they weren't all hippies, but they were definitely, well, you know, it's a, it's a left-wing like party. Left-wing, it's, yeah. it's basically, it's closer to communism, and so science was seen and used as propaganda against communism because everything was propaganda against communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so science was used as, you know, a bludgeoning tool uh, to bludgeon communism with, even though communism was like, no, we, we science is our religion. Mm. Uh, but in the United States, that was the way it was being used. And so people who were left-wing, people who were communist or socialist were like, well, this is, you know, science is just propaganda. Mm. It's, it's mm-hmm. politicised propaganda. Mm. And so they had a very, very high level of scientific distrust. Ooh. Now, through the 80s and 90s, you saw the continued politicization of science, but you also saw a much greater level of the politicization of religion. So uh, for those of you who are my age, you'll probably remember the moral majority that reigned through the 1980s, led by Jerry Falwell, which was a very political, religious organization to create voting blocks within the United States and so religion becomes politicised, science is politicised, mm. and uh, science. this was the era in which science and religion was used to actually drive people apart. Okay. And so science began to stand up and say, well, you can't have both. You know, religion lives in its, in its own bucket, science lives in its bucket, and you can't combine the two together. Now, this was a new thought in the United States. This was not something that had existed in the past. In the past, science and religion had always worked hand in hand. Science had been uh, basically the study of the things, you know, historically was the study of the, of the things that God had created, and now science was moving very much in the direction of atheism. And so this new kind of, um, it became basically a club that the secular left could then use against the religious right. Mm. And so it started to change sides from that perspective during the 80s and 90s. Um, And part of the problem has been that there has now been so much science over the last 100 years or so that has been out there with supposedly good research and has been debunked that even the concept of empirical science is under threat because there is empirical science that we had, you know, from the past. We said, oh, you know, this is observable, testable, Mm. repeatable, and we've actually found out, well, actually, uh, there are exceptions to that, and then we found out bigger exceptions, and then we've had to actually throw it out altogether. Mm. And, you know, particularly in the medical field where we've done tremendous damage to people on on, uh, various occasions because of bad science that we believed was empirical science. And... uh, um, and of course, you know, in the last 10 years or so, science has been blowing just massive holes in the theory of evolution, which is not empirical science, that's historical science. But the problem is that science has responded by doubling down and fighting harder, organizing itself, politicizing itself to be able to fight back and say, no, you need to believe in science. Mm. And so it has driven the two realms further and further and further apart. Mm. And so you've got this increased level of science scepticism that has come through as a result of a lot of science that has been debunked. Mm. 
uh, along with science and scientists basically taking a more authoritarian approach to cover for their mistakes, as people often do. Mm. Wow, that's an interesting thought, eh? Now, the moment that something becomes authoritarian in nature, the natural human reaction is to be suspicious of it. Yeah, 100%. Because if you have to be authoritarian, then... Well, what's actually going wrong here? If you, you know, if you've, if you've got the right on your side, and if it's obvious to everybody, then why do you have to be start being authoritarian about the whole mm, thing? Mm. And so, uh, or the other thing, the other thing that was was taking place back in the nineteen seventies was that science started to recognise that there were problems with our environment. So science became more environmentally conscious. Conscious. Mm. And through the 1980s, that began to then clash with big business. Yes. And so you had science who was seeing problems with the environment. That was now going left because big business, of course, was going right. And so mm. you had start to, started to have this change taking place. And then big politicization. Yep. And, yeah, wow, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Where do we get up to? All right. Then what you had was science began to disparage people's lived experience. Mm. And so basically what pe- what we're saying, you had people who have a genuine faith in God who were having a genuine relationship with God, a very, very real relationship God, which was their experience, and science was coming along and saying, no, that's actual rubbish. Mm. And people were like, how can you say that my experience is rubbish? Mm. This, is, this is what I experience every day. I know Jesus as my best friend, and you're going to say that's rubbish? And so it really, really undermined uh, science in a big way amongst religious people. Yeah, wow. Because they were they were experiencing Christ, and science was saying that it was all uh, false. Okay, so uh, a lot of these things have resulted now. Um, of course, you come down to the COVID situation, and uh, science faith in science has increased amongst Democrats by 16% in the last year, belief in science, Mm. Uh, whereas it's remained static amongst Republicans. Where the biggest shift has been has been amongst black Protestants because in the past uh, science was ideologically anti-black and so that resulted in historic uh, inequalities and uh, what was once the avowed enemy has completely changed Mm. sides and so now the black Protestants have found a new ally in science. And so that's where one of the biggest shifts has actually been. So, so it's interesting, interesting to see. Hey. It's interesting to see how ideologically driven science is. Yes. Mm. And how religious it is. Mm. Anyway, so much more I could say on that. We're way out of time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We need to get to our interview of the day, and normally on a Wednesday, we have joining us on the phone, David Haupt. Today, he's in the studio. Yeah, he's right here. How you going? Good morning, guys. Great to be with you. Fantastic to have you in the studio, David. This is the best ever. Great to experience the vibes here. <laughs> See, it's um, it's one of these interesting things where whenever we talk to David, he's usually pulled over on the side of the road in some obscure part of Australia while he's travelling from <laughs> yes. one appointment to the other. Well, I guess at some point or another, your appointments had to bring you to Newcastle. Sure does. And, um, yeah, it's good to be back at uh, head office. 
Fantastic. All right, so David, last week we were talking about premarital sex and there was some really, really interesting research that you shared with us uh, just demonstrating that when God said don't have premarital sex, God was actually on the money and uh, this was a really, really good idea. There are a whole bunch of reasons for it. It wasn't just some arbitrary, you know, moral thing that God says, you know, don't do this. There's a bunch of reasons for it. Now, I guess one of the questions that, you know, goes through my mind is that for the majority of people, uh, the opportunity for not having premarital sex is long gone. You know, they've, they've, they've long lost their virginity. Um, they're not married. You know, this is the average person in our world today. So if you are in that situation, what do you do? Can, can you reclaim what you have, the opportunities that you've lost? Well, that is a very, very interesting question. And first, I'd just like to say that God is not a killjoy. He's in reality not trying to get the fun away from us. He's in actual fact wanting to preserve us to have fun long term. God actually created sexual intimacy in marriage for our benefit, for for us to enjoy right into. And as I look at Scripture, I look at Abram into his 90s. Um, which is phenomenal. And um, so the question is, is very, uh, very important. Once I have been involved with it, we've heard last week about the damages that is associated with it. Is there hope? Is there hope even when, and, and last week, uh, remember, we spoke about when intimacy, sexual intimacy happens prior to marriage and you even marry that person with whom you had premarital sex will actually produce less oxytocin, the bonding hormone. Is there hope? So often we, especially when we become Christians, we want to do confession and we want to confess to our partner. And the question that I have, is it always good to do that kind of confession to my partner? Is it about restoring my relationship or is it about getting guilt away from myself? Uh, in other words, I basically transfer that guilt uh, onto someone else, and they battle with the issues forward. I've got a few things that I'd like to share, and this morning I'd like to open the Bible, uh, as I normally do when I do work with people. And the first text that I go to is Second Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul describes the gospel here in in a nutshell. And he says here in Second Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Mm. Okay, so that's where we start from. We're a new creation. We're a new being. But God it's, restores. It's interesting that if I take the Bible at face value as I do, I look at the creation story as an actual event that took place. And God spoke and the world was. God spoke and the animals were there. But when it came to the creation of man... What did God do? He reached down in the dust. He Got his hands dirty. And he took the time. He reached down into the dirt and he started to create us. I suggest to people that it doesn't happen instantaneously. As when God created us, his recreation takes time. And it takes effort from our side, a deliberate, intentional willingness to commit ourselves to God's design. Mm. 
Whenever we go outside of God's design in terms of marriage, in terms of love, in terms of human sexuality, we always muck it up. Mm -hmm. And there's always a detrimental impact later in in life, in relationship. So the first thing is to come to God and to, to ask him for a restoration. So many years ago, I worked in Cabramatta in the drug field, and many of my clients were young ladies that actually made their drug money through prostitution. Once they accept Jesus Christ, the question is, can I ever be restored? Yes. This text tells me that by faith, not physically, not physiologically, but by faith, I can actually eventually enter into a marital relationship as a spiritual virgin restored by the restorative, recreative power of him that has created us from the beginning. Can I share a short story? Please. And and, and I've shared this before. I was doing an evangelistic program one time. lady came along and she gave a heart to to God and she was a prostitute. And... uh, uh, you know, to cut a long story short, I was invited back to that church about six months later to conduct a baptism. Her name was one of the names on the list. You know, praise God, it was just, uh, it was, it was fantastic. And so, you know, this was some, you know, I'd been there for a month or so doing this program, and you get to know people really, really well during that time period. And prostitution, it, it leaves its scars sure does. On, on, on people. And, but anyway, be that as it may, it was. Uh, I, I turn up six months later, and I'm sort of looking around, looking for the people who are going to be baptised that day, and she was missing. I couldn't find her in the audience. She wasn't there, and I started to get that, you know, that little bit of a panic, like, oh, you know, hopefully the devil hasn't done something at the last minute, you know, to uh, to derail this whole situation. And after having been there. In that church for about 45 minutes, I suddenly realized she'd been up the front the whole time. Wow. That was how dramatically she had been recreated by God. I didn't even recognize her. She, she was leading, she was a song leader up the front. Yeah. It was mm. just, it was just the greatest example I've ever seen of the recreative power of God. It is, it is amazing. And it has been my privilege for many years to work with those people and to see their transformation as they surrender to God. But it starts off where First John chapter 1, verse 9 says that our part, our role is to confess. Firstly, we need to confess to God. And, and his promise not only to forgive us, not only to, to cleanse us and restore us, but also judicially before his Father to give us a new history. And it is so phenomenal that as we continue to look into the face of him that we love, um, our facial expression starts starts to change. Mm -hmm. And it's very true in uh, two people that have been married for many, many, many years that uh, they, by looking into each other's face, they eventually start to look like brother and sister. And there's a scientific reason for that. What if we actually come to the point where we start to focus in the eyes of Jesus the whole time mm. and see his transformation take place in our life. Wow. Yeah, that's that's mm. it, it's a law of the mind, you know, by beholding we become changed. It's, exactly. It's, exactly. It's what the Bible teaches. Yeah. And, and it's a reality we can we can see it happening around us. But Lyle, there's there's a problem here. There is a angel that rebelled against his creator as I study the word of God. 
who in actual fact was also the instigator that tempted us into wanting to fulfill our lower passions. And the moment that we fall into sin, what happens? He spins around, and not just being the tempter, he now suddenly becomes the accuser. Mm. In the book of Zechariah chapter 3, I see that event happening, where Zechariah uh, writes about Joshua the high priest representing the people of Israel, just being tempted into sin. Israel had fallen boots and all into sin. Satan goes and he accuses them. What is God's reaction in that? He actually turns to Satan. He says, shame on you, Satan. We would expect God to turn on the sinner. He says, isn't this a brand plucked from the fire? And we see the events that take place next is where that individual is restored. Christ's righteousness is placed, placed upon them. Mm. So First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 talks about this temptation of Satan that actually comes and keeps on reminding us of our past. And this for a person that has turned their life around and recognized that they've made a mistake has to come to First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, where it says that Satan is walking around like a roaring light, seeking whom he may devour. And then verse 9 says, resist him. And so often as I work with people that has fallen in the past, I remind them never to sit in conversation with the devil. Mm. Yes. So when he comes and reminds us of the past that we have already surrendered to God, Yes. Peter says our best defense is to turn our back upon Satan, our back upon the accusations of the past, and to engage with Christ and say, Lord, Satan is trying to remind me of things that you have already set me free from. While Mm -hmm. I hide in your presence, will you please deal with him? The Bible Mm -hmm. says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. What it doesn't say is he will cleanse us after a certain amount of time or penance or whatever else it might be. He says the moment we confess our sins. Amen. It is that guilt, it is that shame associated with the past that Satan utilizes to draw us back in. And we need to resist that. And the only way that we can do that is to enter by faith into that which God has already promised. Not to live by feeling, not live by emotion, but by accepting the word of God. And I see that so much illustrated in people, in the story of, of, uh, you know, say for instance, Goma. You know, who has the break of a lifetime. She was a, a sex worker, grew up in the brothel, all that kind of stuff, has the break of a lifetime, but goes back to that life because she listened to that lie of the devil and the devil kept telling her about her past rather than about her present. That's right. It's a trap. That's right. That's right. From a, from a practical perspective, I think there's a lot of things that we can do and should do in our marital relationship. And that is, in other words, the importance of building trust in our relationship. In other words, transparency. Uh, be, be open, be transparent where I go, what I do uh, w- with my spouse. Being present. Uh, we're here three men together. Our wives, those of us that are married, our wives know whether we're present, Lyle, am I right? Yes. Whether we're emotionally <laughs> present. Um, then the intentionality to work on, on the relationship. Uh, for men, it is so important to watch where they look. 
Job, yes. Job 31 one says that he's made a covenant with his eyes not to look on fair maiden. Mm. A covenant. Once I've committed to my relationship, I make a commitment even with my eyes that no one else is available for me. Those kind of things will actually help to restore the trust relationship because in the heart of so many spouses is the question, if my spouse were unfaithful to me before marriage, what will make them faithful in marriage? Mm. Number one, the relationship with God, the intentionality to be present, and the commitment to the life into the marriage. David Howard, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. That was very, very sound advice, and we need to all take it to heart. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.